from Nowhere to Nothing Ontological Oxymorons. I'm your host, Joel Bouchard, a doctoral student in psychology, and with me is Mr. Norman Gayford, a professor of English and philosophy. We've asked the question before, if a tree falls in the woods and no one is there to hear it, does it make a sound? Today we'll look at similar questions from a different paradigmatic approach than last time. Like, if you tell me what you're thinking, but I can't experience your mind, how do I know there are thoughts? Or, would mathematics still exist if humans didn't? Or, well, would anything exist if humans didn't? Do humans exist? Oh yeah, it's going to be one of those episodes. (laughs) We're looking at realism. (laughs) So, I think one of our earliest episodes was on reality. Yes. And, um, you know, there will be some crossover, uh, but realism is sort of its own thing. It's it's not... (laughs) It's not like a, a philosophical um, school, but it's just sort of looking at um, sort of things topic by topic or in categories and saying, well, how do we know these things exist, right? So, what is what is philosophical realism? <laughs> I'm going to read something to you because, because uh, you know, we, we both share this, read this magazine, but... Uh, Paul Doolin, a philosopher, reveals that the real problem with the real world is knowing what real really means. (laughs) (laughs) All right. Um, Real is, has been off and on, but quite often as a strain running through it, uh, considering a couple of things. One, that the world is made up of facts, not objects, but facts. And and if and if you just take it slowly, and I like like a good good coffee or a good wine, I just like to sip it slowly. And you think about that. There's, there's wait a minute. A, a fact isn't an object, but there are objects. Aren't there? And so, yes, there's yeah. that. The, the second part of that, and I know we'll get to this too, but it's the idea, we'll put it on the table, of, of direct perception of whether, to what degree, if uh, the perceptual apparatus works uh, so that we actually see or hear or, or smell what we, what we think that we do. And, and we've, we've touched on that before, but I, I think we're going further this time. Yeah. So, yeah, that was a really good intro because that hits right at what we're, what we're going to get at with the heart of the conversation. So that was my next question is, is sensory perception an integral part of the discussion of realism? Well, in, in my experience, you know, part of this is, uh, can't help but be couched in a context. And the context is uh, when I started my study, uh, and, and again, we have, we've said this just time and time and time again. I, I'm not a master or a PhD in philosophy, but a study. And I've had enough study on, a, on various levels to be able to teach and to converse. But in my earlier life, the, the discussion of the perceptual apparatus is very different than it is now with neuro philosophy and, and the, their neurological context and the brain is everything and, and so on. So, 
um, to me, the perceptual apparatus evolutionarily has a purpose. And that purpose must in some way be for survival. And if it is consistent with how I've learned evolution or about evolution over the years, that there's a consistency, then, then this perceptual apparatus must be trusted to some extent. Not absolutely. You can't believe everything you see. We know this from photo manipulation, for instance. You can't believe everything you hear because, well, because you may not know what you're hearing and you, and you automatically leap to conclusions about what you thought you heard. My granddaughter will sometimes say to me when we're, we're out in our little expeditions, um, she'll say, what's that? And, you know, I'm hearing all kinds <laughs> of, I, I, what did you hear? And she'll try to imitate it. And I listen. And if it repeats, like maybe there's a hammering a few streets over because somebody, some contractor is working on a porch. But it also could be that there is a piece of metal slamming against another house, which I noticed. So I can't say to her, oh, that is this thing. She wants the one-to-one. I want to know what it is so I'm not disturbed by it because she's so small right? and, 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 and every, the world's exploding for her. I want to hand her certainty, but I, I can't and I shouldn't. <laughs> yeah. And so again, we've, we've looked at uh, some, a lot of this before. Um, and so now this episode sort of ties some of it together, but this is a really complicated question depending on um, where you start to sort of, like you said, um, the trust and sensory perception, where you start saying, um, okay, here are my presuppositions. Because you have like um, skeptics or solipsists that doubt everything. Mm-hmm. Basically say that almost that there, is, there isn't reality. And then you have sort of people um, like naive realism where they think, okay, well, m- my, I can trust my sensory perceptions. Yeah. Yeah. And then you have other sort of scientific realism where you say, well, okay, well, that trust can extend into scientific um, instrumentation and, and knowledge. And then I think beyond that, even the, the one example that I was thinking of preparing for the episode that would, I thought was kind of a good one to answer this question, um, is the idea of what's outside the universe, right? This sort of thing. It's like, okay, well we have, there's no sensory perception for that, right? Either human or scientific, but in some definitions of this um, realism, even thinking about a um, abstraction, you know, or thinking about um, something that could possibly exist but doesn't, is enough to provide it something there. So this is that's why this conversation is going to be so fascinating. Is like you said in in the intro, we're talking about facts, not objects. And so that when was you, Wittgenstein, by the way. Yeah. yeah. So when you start thinking about that, okay, well, is is um, morality a fact? Is mathematics, you know, are, are those mathematical equations facts? Like, what what is a fact? You know, and and <laughs> what is real? You know, how far can I trust what I'm perceiving, whether it's through natural senses or scientific? perceptions or right. my, my own thought experiments, these mm-hmm. sorts of things. Mm-hmm. 
And so we try, so of course, and you know this well, we try various things. We try to replicate. I mean, it's a scientific method, right? Mm -hmm. We know there's a lot more to the scientific method than we were taught in elementary school. But if you can replicate a result time and time again, whether in theoretical physics and simulations or chemistry, uh, hands-on with the tubes, then you begin to trust that there is a factuality present. One plus one equals two, because we have a numerical system <laughs> that that works out that way. So we can say that one plus one is a fact, but only if we could talk about, well, what kind of numbers are we talking about? Yeah, right? yeah, <laughs> yeah. And that's, that's where it gets, it gets interesting because mathematics is very clean. And I think that the human inclination is to draw clean distinctions and boundaries around things. When in reality, in reality, <laughs> when things are not like that. And so with the scientific instrumentation, this one um, sort of hits a chord with me, right? Because let's say we have that um, example with your granddaughter, right? Mm-hmm. So you're using the auditory system that you were born with to perceive your environment. And it's a good system. You know, you can hear stuff from 20 hertz to about 20,000 depending on your age, might drop down to 15 or 12,000 or, you know, there, there might be little dips, you know, there is dips. There's the Munchen curve where um, things within the two to 3,000 hertz range sound louder just because of the shape of the ear and the ears set here, hair cells and these sorts of things. So we perceive it to be linear. We think, oh, okay, well, um, bassy sounds and treble sounds have similar volume when they don't. Or, you know, things that are within the speaking range are louder and more clear to us because our our brains and our hearing system have evolved to make give those precedents. Mm-hmm. When reality and in reality in the environment there isn't such a thing. The, you know, you just have a more perceptive hearing range. So I work with, you know, I want not want to say scientific instruments, but instruments that provide analysis and um, sort of insight into the reality of the audio spectrum, right? So, and those instruments can do strange things when you start doing, let's say I'm picking up with the microphones that we're using that same banging that she was hearing, right? And I can look at it on a spectral, you know, spectral graph and and these sorts of things. And we've even reached the point where I can use AI to try to figure out what sound it is, Right. Now, all of my stuff is geared towards music, but even when I'm playing instruments, this happens, right? So I might be playing drums and I'm playing. So the the computer will pick up a snare hit and will say, okay, that's a snare drum. I can tell by the spectral shape of the, the curve when, you know, I can tell by how percussive it is, mm-hmm. you know, where there are things in the audio spectrum, that sort of thing. Well, if I'm playing and then as a human, I hit the snare drum in a different place. Instead of hitting it dead center in the middle of the head, I hit it out near the rim. Well, that changes the spectral characteristic of the snare drum. And sometimes the AI says, oh no, that's not a snare drum. That that's a wood block, or that's a, Mm -hmm. you know, that's a cowbell, or it's a, it's a, you know, it's a splash symbol or something else. And it will apply different processing to it, right? 
<laughs> so then this happens in science all the time. As a matter of fact, the cosmic microwave background was discovered by guys trying to use a radio telescope and they had this noise in there and they said, well, it must be pigeon poop on the satellite. <laughs> and so these guys spent all day cleaning out this pigeon poop only to find out that the noise is still there. And they say, whoa, is there actually just this noise everywhere in the universe? And they just made a huge discovery. <laughs> That's part of the problem with trusting scientific knowledge is that we want to believe one plus one equals one. But is there always a totally equal one and one? Hmm. Or is there always some sort of noise in the signal or something different in the things that make it difficult to have such a clean equation? Which know? is why, it, uh, well, it's, it's it of course, is what we've, we've mentioned. And we go forward this way. We, it, it's fine to, to go back to things and to re, because life is about recycling. Life is about rethinking. And we, science is inductive. And so facts can be established if they are replicable, according to that model. But yeah, then you stumble onto something. You say, well, wait, what about that? Well, okay, this seems to be this until it might be something else. I think philosophically the difficulty becomes when we talk about reality. I really sometimes wish that we would talk about you substitute the word uh, context or environment. And you said environment a little while ago. So uh, rather than in reality, well, in this mm -hmm. environment or in this situation or whatever, mm -hmm. uh, you know, there, facts are those things which can be established beyond a shadow of a doubt. All right. We've established that the election had, this past election had no uh, uh, substantial, in fact, less than usual of uh, fraud so to a 0. 0.000 <laughs> decimal. Nonetheless, there are people who stake their lives on the fact that the, no, it was all fraudulent because they choose to believe that because it is part of the reality in which they wish to live. We convince ourselves of a reality in, in emotional terms. We convince ourselves of things because we sometimes, and I, we've, we do it as human. We, we refuse to think. And, and when we refuse to use that particular part of our evolutionary apparatus, and to me, it doesn't matter if you say, well, no, no, you, you use the sense God gave you. Okay. Or use the brain that evolution gave you. Did God do evolution? Okay. Then fine. That doesn't matter to me. What matters is we can think or we can choose not to. And we can, and just because we think doesn't mean we think well. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And so this, this sort of thing goes all the way back. So what you just said isn't, isn't philosophically agreed upon completely. Nothing is. But so now we're getting into that question of sort of Platonic realism versus other <laughs> realism, right? Cause, cause Plato might say, you know, as far as like, okay, some, a scientific fact being replicable would be beyond a shadow of a doubt. Mm -hmm. That particular language is interesting, right? Cause Plato would say, well, no, because you never see the thing. You only see a shadow of the thing, right? So, and and that's with our modern, it, that's what makes it so interesting with where we are in time, right? We have this, this technology yep. and we yep. have all of these instruments that extend the human senses so far. 
that we want to believe that we're, we have arrived at the truth. But as we found in this podcast, right, everything that we look at, there's always that wiggle room, right? There and is. The most pertinent um, example I can think of throughout history is um, cosmology, right? If you have um, people have been studying the stars for thousands and thousands of years, pretty much since humans, you know, had became, you know, homo sapiens. And what I like seeing is in, you know, ancient times. Um, okay, well, this is this is how the planets work. Well, then that didn't quite work out. So then they added epicycles, right? And they're like, okay, this is how they work. And then more research said, well, it's closer, but it's it's not right. So we'll add more epicycles. I said, okay, that's how it works. Well, no, it's still not adding up, but it's closer than it was. So they keep adding them and adding them. And pretty soon you have planets just spinning on rings, spinning around each other, doing all this stuff to try to get the data to make sense. The orifices. Right, until a new paradigm arrived. And then we could confidently say, oh, okay, this is how the planets exist. And now we we have that accuracy within fractions of seconds, right? How the planets orbit. Um, but still, like I just said, it's, it's an accuracy within fractions of seconds. So we still don't, you know, I guess we still don't know how the planets orbit, even though we have such a high percentage of accuracy of how they work. So that's what makes it interesting, right? Is modern technology and stuff. We've arrived at a huge level of precision and detail but do you think humans can ever really say we have a fact? Uh, uh, yes, I, I do. So I'm I'm the old-fashioned guy here. It, 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 in the sense that uh, there are things that can't be measured. Let's take a really mundane example. Did a student submit a paper to me? or not. Well, perhaps it wasn't in hard copy because I allowed it to be submitted in Google Docs. Now the student can say, but I but I, I uploaded it into Google Docs and now it's not there. Well, then just send me a copy because of course you saved your file. Well, no, I didn't save my file. So the, the fact may be that the student made the attempt to submit it, but the submitting didn't work. Therefore, I didn't receive a paper. That is, is the, the fact of whether or not the paper exists or existed may not be able to be determined, but the fact that it was not delivered is measurable. And, and one needs to be careful about what one is establishing as fact based on what is, if, if not measurable physically, uh, if if it can be established intuitively to the agreement of of a dominant majority, we accept that sometimes as as a qualified fact. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, this is and this is a really important part of the discussion. I mean, like I said, this is something that is not universally agreed upon in philosophy, and. It's it's an episode that we really need to do. We talk about a lot, but relativism, right? Yes, we do. Now, right. the orbit of the planets is one of the most – that's about as close to being a fact as you can say because the planets orbit in a vacuum, so things are very predictable. You know, we can predict the orbit of the moon 
millions of years into the future because mm-hmm. things operate so regularly in space. So I think that there, there's an important line to be drawn between a failure in the scientific thinking and just noise in the data, right? Yeah. So maybe yeah. we don't know the orbits to the second because space isn't a true vacuum. You know, there's, you know, there's a three, you know, neutrons per square meter, and that's just enough to slow down the gravity of a planet as they're traveling through space to, to affect it by a, a fraction of a second. And then you there's know? dark matter. And then you say, yeah, and, but the question is, does that does that wreck the the validity of the science? No, you know, you it's just something that we don't have the measurements to predict. But on a whole, we can look at the system and know how it works. Mm-hmm. And so, as a philosopher, you have to ask yourself the question: Okay, is that enough for me to establish this as a fact and to say that I trust the scientific method that we used or not? Mm-hmm. And it's going to vary from case to case. You know, I think in the in terms of scientific. Um, orbit, you know, our planetary orbits, it's amply sufficient to say, yes, we can, we know the science here and we can trust it. Mm-hmm. Um, whereas if it was hundreds of years ago and we were looking at epicycles, we might say, hmm, I don't know if this really makes enough sense, you know, for it to work out. Yes. It, 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 the knowledge accumulates, it, the, the fuzziness gets, gets more precise. Our, our awareness of what's out there and around us gets more complicated. The human animal does not like complexity <laughs> as, 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 a, as a standard operating principle. I think we, we, you smile to nod. We, we, we can agree that we'd rather have a simple explanation than a complicated one. We'd rather have something that's just absolutely certain all the time because that's just the way that we want it. Too bad for us. It's amazing we've survived this <laughs> because <laughs> it's, it's just not how it works. So we can say that there is a fact that there is a huge uh, spectrum of radiation around us because instruments measure that. Though we can't see it. So in reality, there is radiation all around us. In reality, we can't see it. So there are two realities that are not inconsistent with each other. It's just a degree of how, how focused that they are. So it's, it's not a, yeah, and we will, we do, we need to go to relativism, but it's, it's not a degree. Well, my reality is totally different than your reality. And so they're all just, uh, all these realities exist. Well, uh, multiverses are fun to think about, <laughs> and, and but but there are still things that we can establish. Do you breathe, or would you assert that you do, are not an air breather? <laughs> uh, do you have digits? Have you lost some? Were you born without some? Is a standard human set of digits ten fingers? We know that there are people who are born without fingers. We know that accidents take place and so on. So the reality that people deal with or live with is not the standard. But we still can say, but there's a standard that's measurable across huge statistical analysis. Yeah, and then some people who have have lost digits still perceive them as there. The- in their reality sometimes because the, they're conditioned to to think that yes. so yeah this we've we've established the complexity of realism which is exactly what i wanted to hit at in the beginning of the episode so now we'll start to we'll start to look at some of these things okay so what separates the discussion of realism from the discussion of truth 
That's a lovely question <laughs> that one could spend an entire lifetime with and pretty much does. If, you, if we think about justice, if we think about we, often people uh, uh, preface a phrase with the truth of the matter is as if it had already been established. Well, the truth of the matter is that I just put my hand on these, the, the arm of this chair. Now, if someone is listening to this and they stay with this mundane example, they could readily say, but I didn't see that happen. That was my hand going on the chair. Well, I don't know. Let me use my AI on it and see if that was <laughs> a hand whacking an arm. But but sometimes we accept facts as the establishment of a causal chain. Right? And so when we say the truth of the matter is that this happened and then that happened, well, the accuracy of the matter is <laughs> that this happened and that happened. I uh, the the truth is a very culturally, uh, morally dominating thought, which is oft clouded by presupposition and belief systems. And so belief systems will claim the truth, the, the truth of the life of Jesus Christ or the truth of the Buddha or, or uh, uh, the flat earthers will say that no matter what you show us, we know the truth is that the earth is flat. And so no, no establishment of factuality and presentation of that and causality and uh, where, whatever levels we wish to go to generally affect that belief system because people people uh, retreat to a truth as they call it sometimes and and are unwilling to see that just like in science and inductively truths change so do truths when we become aware of a larger history that is a fantastic answer. <laughs> I had an example ready to bail you out because I wrote the question. <laughs> I wrote the question and I was like, thanks for trusting that one. <laughs> I, I wrote the question. I was like, man, this is a rough one. But somehow you always you always end up giving really good answers. The example that I had was basically exactly what you just said, which is um, the example of a, a misrepresentation, right? If somebody, let's say I was driving at night somewhere and something ran across the road and my brain told me it was a raccoon, yes, right? Yeah. And then I'm telling, you know, when somebody else was in the car and they saw a possum, right? And then we're telling the story to a third party later, right? And I say, yeah, and I was driving and this big raccoon ran out across <laughs> the road. And the other person says, no, it was a, it was a possum. And, you know, and you have this argument, right? Mm -hmm. So what is the, you know what separates the truth from the reality in that in that situation and what you ex what you said is essentially there might be a different truth based on the belief system between the two people but there is a reality of what happened yeah the fact is that something went in front of you and it was of a it was of a, a roughly determinable size mm. I, this this locates our discussion in time but this you know something that uh, we were talking about before i think 
is very important here. Uh, today, we know uh, it's December uh, 2021, and we know that we're a couple weeks away from Christmas. And you know what I'm doing? I'm not putting the day itself. I'm not giving it a number. This is purposely chosen. Sometime in mid-December, tornadoes, sets of tornadoes rack uh, middle America. And uh, a terrible number of deaths have apparently happened. They don't know how many yet. And uh, there's a large uh, warehousing facility. And that got hit by a tornado, and uh, we don't know how many people are lost. But when the the people who are responsible for management uh, are asked for a number of how many people are in the building, the first current, current as of an hour ago, report was that, well, it's not in the hundreds. Now, to me, that's extraordinarily vague. It may well be the truth that it's not in the hundreds. I certainly hope so. But one would like less vagary and more specificity if one were a searcher, I am sure. If, if families want to know, if, and, and, and there, and there is the inevitable human complexity of some people going out for a smoke, some people ran off to McDonald's to get a, a lunch and maybe they were still on the clock and you, you don't know if they're in the building or somebody had to run up the car to get a purse or whatever. And and so maybe we don't you you, you or it's understandable you don't know the exact number at an exact moment that are in a building. Nonetheless, you in, in management terms should have some idea of who's in a building. I, I I would think. Yeah, absolutely. You know, as as somebody who's in charge of this sort of thing, you know, we have we have a roster, an emergency evacuation roster. That were there to be an emergency, I would grab on my way out, and then we have a designated meeting spot, and we check off people and do this sort of thing. Um, you have cars in parking lots, you have all this sort of stuff, and like you said, it's never that clean cut, right? Somebody always is out doing something, sure. or somebody could be visiting, you know, that doesn't isn't normally there. So there is a certain amount of noise in the data, right? But at the same time, there is something that you should have a a pretty clear um you know brackets Especially data, if you, data if you bars, card you yourself know. in and out if you have to flip a card anyway that 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 is not said to trash anybody but to bring up uh, in a very stark real, human i was about to say real human terms because uh, we like to use that word just to yeah. emphasize that we know what's going on that some things are measurable Precisely, some things are measurable uh, roughly. Uh, some things perhaps aren't measurable at all, and so there's a degree of power or solidity in the factual measure, the factual um, spectrum. But there are still things that could be established. Yeah, and this looms large in science. Um, it's called, you know, error bars is what it's called. So, like we were talking about earlier, we have the mathematics, right? And we want to say that one plus one equals two. We want it to be that clear cut. But when you get into 
real science and real mathematics and you have the equations going out and you look at the mass of the moon and its its trajectory and all of its distance from the gravitational pull of earth and this stuff when you play all the equations out what ends up at the other end of the equal sign is these brackets and these brackets are called error bars and there's a a certain power of certainty that tells you to what degree you believe that result is accurate you know and that's that's the way it is with everything right and it doesn't matter if you're looking at you know scientifically at the planets or if you're you're looking at how many people were in your building that you're looking mm-hmm. at Sorry, you have these error bars you're saying okay well there should be 80 plus or minus five based off of the information we have people in a building you know or yeah the moon should be here plus or minus a couple inches within a year these sorts of things you can't avoid the noise in the data but there is data yeah that's and that i think that's where we're what we're coming to and all the complexity there there is data and would we say that the data is the truth no the data can lead to an attempt uh, an authentic attempt to establish a truth this is this is what one hopes the legal system does one knows the legal system doesn't really always adhere to this but you know I've, I've, i'm quite a fan of 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 detective of british detective shows and i have to say that i know that that's not uh, that it's it's clear that many are not realistic and, and well we have the dna analysis and suddenly dna is is absolute well we we know the dna is not absolute but but nonetheless when when somebody uh there's a murder let's say and, and there's an and the, the detective stalwart detective comes out and asks each of the the suspects or the potential suspects people who were there uh, where were you when this happened well i was in my room reading uh, that you know, I, I I'd gone for a walk in the woods, and 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 the teacher says, "Can can anybody vouch for that? Can, is there any verification?" Well, well, no, I was out walking through. So now we have a situation in which the person may well have been out walking in the woods. The fact that they don't have an alibi doesn't mean that they are guilty, and they may know that they were out there in the woods that will give them the, they have the competence in this state of mind, cognitive integrity <laughs> that they were there, but they can't prove it. And the detective has to say, well, then that can't remove you from the list of the suspects for this case because, well, that's all about factuality and degrees of what can and cannot be established. Yeah. Yeah. And in cinematic detective work versus real detective work, we know that there's a gap there. Right. And and DNA evidence has brought some of this to light. Right. We we wanted to believe. (laughs) Well, you know, the white community wanted to believe up until very recently that um, going through due process provided justice. Right. Yeah. And DNA shed a a big light on some of this, you know, in in addition to um, cultural changes and these sorts of things. But, you know, there's been hundreds of people who have made it off of death row because DNA has has cleared them. Yeah. So that tells you that due process doesn't always pan out because, you know, and because you're you're relying on 
okay, are you relying on data? Maybe certain data points, but in a court of law, there's emotions, there's implicit bias, there's all of these other things that are playing into the decision that jurors and judges and lawyers and and defendants are making about how they present a case. And that implicit bias, that 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 cloudiness, that presupposition is something that each one of us, I, I, now I am being moralistic, should, <laughs> yes, I said that terrible word, ought to consider in our daily interactions with other people. One of my other former students, who's my yoga teacher, was talking to me about this this week, where uh, in a in a also a dire situation with her dad, and 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 trying to get to the hospital, and is going faster than ought to have been going by normal terms, but and and said I. I I looked over at this other driver who was clearly upset that I was pushing so hard and, and, and realized that uh, they're not trying to be an impediment to me getting somewhere. They're not the bad guy. They're not. But sometimes we just assume that. Get out of my way because you're just lunatics and you're just, you don't care about anything. How dare we say this about the people who are driving in front of us? We, we have no knowledge whatsoever. Even if we know them, even if they're a neighbor and they're in a car, we don't know where they're going. We don't know why. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. That's that's kind of an inside joke with, with me and Amanda. If we're driving somewhere and somebody flies past me, I say, well, they must be having a baby. <laughs> but it does highlight... Like you said, the implicit bias. And then, so on the human side of it, there's that. And then on the data side, like you said, DNA isn't the be all end all either, right? Recently, I had to have a DNA test done to figure out if I was at risk for um, certain rare, um, dangerous cancer genes. And the results I got back were very interesting because they tested me for several dozen different cancer genes. And the results were. Um, negative for over half of them. And then for the other minority, it said, we're uncertain, but based off of the data that we have, we don't believe you're at risk. But in several years, once we have more data points, we'll be able to provide you with a better answer. Mm -hmm. And that's, you know, again, it's one of those things. We'd like to, like one plus one should equal two. We like to believe okay, A, T, C, and G should always line up in these pairs and we should be able to know what they mean and it should all make sense. And it doesn't at this point. And in the future, much like the orbit of the planets, it will become more clear, but there's always going to be noise in the data. There's always going to yes. be that Neanderthal DNA <laughs> that doesn't make any sense and we don't know how it affects it and these sorts of things. And we can still... So now we're... That's wonderful. You've just... You've encapsulated that. So we've come to reality. Well, there are facts. You had tests. There are, the fact is that the results came in. Was an absolute conclusion possible? No, but inductively, there were some, quite probably, this is okay and so on. There were still facts. 
the, the part of the debate now in philosophy is with the word reality. Do we take reality to make to mean the sum total of all being, uh, the world, so to speak? But even when we say world, we're back to the language philosophy. The world? Oh, you mean the earth? No, I, uh, how about if we just use the world as the entire, all of the universes that that exist together? And we say that is the sum total of reality. Does it really help us to say that? <laughs> I, I mean, can we say with absolute certainty that we are not, uh, uh, to use the metaphor of um, a virtual reality simulation? I. We are in no position to necessarily say that. Then we can offer arguments and so on about it, but does it? Why do we say it? What does? To what degree does it matter? If we are simulations and we have been coded or written as characters to encounter encounter other situations and people, objects, facts, <laughs> and and to respond in specific ways then we have our behaviors determined does that does it matter for a, a, a simulation or a truly flesh and blood being i don't know that that it does uh really much <laughs> yeah yeah all right so we've done I think we've done a pretty good job. It's been like I warned you in the intro it was going to be one of those episodes, but I think that we've, we've sort of ground through this establishing the essence of, of the philosophical um, discussion around realism. When did this discussion emerge in philosophical circles? Well, I think in a formal sense, one could uh, go, go back to the enlightenment age um, and uh, the, the, you t you're talking about Wittgenstein and David Hume and and uh, people across the spectrum of many, a, a couple of centuries, but roughly, <laughs> I would say within the past four hundred years. Okay, yeah. So you know, I think that that's when people started to think about it. Do you think that? You know, I mentioned Plato earlier, and yeah, he, and he mean, talked Plato about shadows on the wall. And well, stuff. sure. Yeah. Do you, do you think he? Do you think he was actually thinking about it the way that we think about it now? Do you think that he had that Descartes quote, the Cartesian question in his mind, or what was he when he was talking about shadows on a wall? I don't think he. I, I don't. I don't because he couldn't be Descartes, Descartes because Descartes was also a person to some way in some ways contextual of, contextually of his time. Uh, you, but Plato was saying that you don't, you can, I mean, his cave metaphor, his, the cave model, their people are chained, they're watching, as you say, the shadows on the wall that are cast by puppeteers, uh, putting, uh, standing in front of a fire, thus casting the shadows, and the people are just having it. But someone escapes and escapes and, and runs out, out of the cave, into the absolute brilliance of sunlight. Plato's asserted they will run right back because it is too, the, the reality of that direct sunlight is too much to handle. People want the shadows instead. So to that extent, sure, Plato was talking about what we're talking about with reality, but but he wasn't asserting it, I think, in the same 
Yeah, because kind of, yeah, because like you just mentioned, um, you know, where we are today is talking about our reality possibly being a simulation, yeah. which is something that makes us want to run right back into the cave, right? No, no, <laughs> what does. what I know is real. This is real. Yeah. But Plato probably couldn't conceptualize that. He was thinking of it in terms of truths, right? Facts, ideals, these things that are out there. He was Plato was under the impression that that morality and, and true these things were were really out there, but that we couldn't we couldn't really stand in yes. the, the reality yes. of them. Yes. Well, I mean, to, it's it, this is so much fun. It's it absolutely engaging. The, why do we uh, assert the real as if it is almost a, a, a punitive or limiting? thing. Now, that's a strange question, right? But uh, for instance, people will say to young people, get real. What? Does that mean I shouldn't dream? Does it mean I shouldn't aspire? Does that mean I shouldn't get, get real? This is what your situation in life is going to be. Stop. Insert parent or grandparent. How do you know that? <laughs> you know, of course, young people don't often have the the, the vocabulary or the the, the the experience, context, confidence to to say that to people. Are what are we trying to say? Do we want people to constantly think about the fact that we are all limited, that we are all mortal, that we do we just want to have people totally focused on their physical capacities? And constantly dwelling on that. Uh, And for those who use the word real in that way, I say, bunk. Go live your limited lives. I don't want anything to do with it. (laughs) I do not accept your reality of the real. (laughs) Yeah. So, um, did realism and skepticism and ideal, did all these things develop codependently? Do you think that... In the Enlightenment, there was sort of a Pandora's box that got opened when we we started to think about reality. Well, yeah, but but you've answered your own question back to Plato. Right? Plato was talking about idealism long before the Enlightenment, and 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 what is meant by the ideal world, of course, changes. So for Plato, there's a there's one a template, so to speak, the uh, the perfect tree in a world that we cannot access. And so the shadows of the, the, the malformed and, and, and imperfect trees are all around us because they're in the, the, the world that we live in and can perceive. So it was two zones that could not be crossed back and forth and accept intellectually. Uh, we, uh, so many people use the word ideals in, in, in different terms, things to aspire to or, or being better than one is. But that implies an osmotic kind of, oh, I see the perfect tree. I'm going to try to, or I see the perfect gymnastic move or whatever it is. I'm going to try to aspire to that. Well, it still says I probably won't get there. But if I'm aspiring to it, we somehow associate that with being a positive uh, uh, act, right? And so, there, it, it, yes, the Pandora's box was opened and and remains opened. We we try to we try to build other boxes around it sometimes, but I, they, they they are dependent upon each other as as conflicting or dualistic um, ideas. 
Do you think, sometimes I ask you questions and I know the answer. Sometimes I ask you questions because I'm genuinely curious. This is one of them. Um, Do you think that this is mostly a Western issue? Do Eastern religions and philosophies deal with this idealism and this um, this sort of stretch for it in the same way? Not, I, I think not in the same way. In my, in my, in my, and I, uh, all of our experience, I say my limited experience, all of our experience is limited because you can't have every, every experience. But in reading, conversing, and, and practicing very roughly my own yoga practice, it's, it, there's, less of a set of siloed categorizations more i think an acknowledgement of the fluidity of of all things and so no it's not the same okay i like that a lot better because i feel like that's the way that i intuitively think about things it's like you said earlier in the show humans want a simple answer i feel like i want the complex answer right <laughs> as soon as i have the answer you know, I'm I'm not a conspiracy theorist because I feel like conspiracy theorists, right? They will, even though it seems like they're taking something that's simple or factual and making it complex, it's really the the inverse, but it's just confused. It right? is. They're, they're dressing it up. They're taking something that's very complicated, yeah. and then they're adding simplistic knowledge to it that that makes sense with what they believe they know in order to come to a conclusion. That and and what they are privileged to know because, of course, they have figured out the conspiracy, and so they have the answer that you ought to want. Right. There's still that capitalistic thing. Anyway, I'm yeah, interrupting. In, in, so my ter- in my <laughs> personal terms, I like to feel like I never know anything. <laughs> I just like to, as soon as I think I understand something, I like to think, well, yeah, but there's, there's, there's some other mystery. There's some other thing that I, that I don't understand that is a, a piece of this puzzle that I'm not getting. Socrates would be looking over your shoulder, it, perhaps, and going, good. <laughs> that's, that's what gives me a, a, a sense of, uh, of, of joy. Um, but yeah, does, Outside of perception, can we as human beings determine reality? So you talked about how if we're in a simulation, we are experiencing determinism. Our behavior is determined. But can we as human beings actually determine reality? I think we we have a range of acts which we take that can that can cause other effects that might take us a little bit off the 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 predetermined necessities that the neurologists and the geneticists tell us are, are there. Uh, I don't. I think that we, and I, which is to say, I think we have some free choice. But determining our reality that now we're going back to the word reality as context or environment. I. I I have some ability to determine the set of conditions in which I am comfortable or set the conditions which will lead me to, I, 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 I was offered to graciously three years. Oh, we're going on three years. This, yeah. this thing the, 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 with you, this marvelous podcasting is conversations. I could have said no or I could have said yes. Uh, some people say, well, of course you were going to say yes because that's just, uh, that, that, I don't, I'm not interested in that kind of calculus. It went this way and I'm having a great time. Uh, uh, so we have choices. Uh, 
And, and we can, and, and, you know, all the self-help books in the world, which are based to some degree on, on sacred texts here and there is, is uh, philosophy is you can, you can, to some degree, establish your mindset. Uh, you, and so, is that answering what you're asking? Yeah, it's, it's a real complex question because we can it look is. at it from a sort of a traditional philosophical standpoint, like you just explained, sort of the free will versus determinism um, view. But here's where like modern philosophy adds an interesting twist to it, right? Because there's um there's a, a a physics realism, right, where philosophers are starting to to think about reality and human actions within the quantum realm, <laughs> and saying, okay, well, actually, um, you know, if you if you look at environment, right, I can't, you know, I can't really change my makeup, right? Like, I can't change my skin. I can't affect the rate at which I age. You know, I. I can manipulate things, but I can't change my my environment or my reality. I can have an effect on it, but I can't change it. Yeah, yeah. Well, there's there's philosophers who are looking at physics mm-hmm. and saying, well, actually, when you are making decisions, you're collapsing wave functions, and it's sort of Schrodinger's cat yeah. with with human beings. And so, actually, we are sort of forging our reality each each moment you know so it's kind of an interesting twist to it is huh it is. well it, it, it is and and that is, i think it's exciting i i think it's exciting because it's to me and i'm being overly simplistic because i'm an overly simplistic fellow it's 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 as much as to say sure if i choose not to eat three donuts today and i and i and i don't do that but i have carrot sticks and i shift into this for an extended period of time, I've collapsed the waveform, which is leading me to a less healthy uh, existence. And physics can teach me that. Anatomy has been teaching that for a long time. And physics can also, physics can, and that, that kind of physics philosophy crossover enables the thinking that, uh, yeah, you can change the future. Yeah, and then, and then there's a psychology component, right? Where psychologists would insist, well, actually, your capacity to exert free will and discipline is very limited. So, choosing not to eat donuts is almost not really within your capacity. Yes, yeah, so there, there are people who would say that. <laughs> so, if, if you're not eating the donuts, it might not necessarily because you don't have the willpower or because you have the willpower or discipline. It might be because you ate carrot sticks beforehand and the fiber filled your stomach and that decreased the the <laughs> lepitin and the ghrelin hunger hormones in your brain and so you didn't eat it but psychologically you didn't actually have the power to make that choice but physiologically your body was able to say oh i don't need the donut because i have the sugar and the, the fiber from the and carrot. emotionally how i feel when i have said donut or or i drink a lovely glass of wine occasionally and it makes me very happy <laughs> There's something to that too in the in the quality of the life one is leaving uh, living, and so yeah. Then this encapsulates the whole conversation we've been having, right? Is yeah. it, these different aspects of science? You know, you have you have um, a physicist and a psychologist and a philosopher. It sounds like the beginning of a, a joke, <laughs> <laughs> but it's kind of like 
those people driving in that car at nighttime, right? You yeah. see somebody say, oh, wow, you see that thing? It must have been three feet long. Somebody else says, no, this must have been two feet. It's probably two feet. And somebody else says, well, I didn't see the size, but it definitely had some white fur on it. Mm-hmm. And somebody mm-hmm. says, well, you know, based on the locomotion, the way its legs were moving, or, yeah, it was this tall, or, you know what, I saw a reflection of green in the eyes, not yellow. Mm-hmm. And you have all the people in the car seeing different things to try to determine what that thing is in the dark that ran across the road. Six blind men and an elephant. Yeah, yeah, that's that's the perfect philosophical example. I think we've mentioned it before, but we can talk about it again. You have three, you know, say three, six, however many blind men trying to figure out what sort of animal they're they're feeling, and it's an elephant. Yeah, so you have one guy in the trunk. Oh, well, this is a long, you know, this is a long, flexible animal, you know, and somebody touching the foot. No, this is a sturdy, you know, solid animal, and somebody touching the tail, and oh, this is a hairy animal, you know, all these different things. So, yeah, it's... You have to compare the data. Right. And you have some sort of picture, you know, with air bars, with noise, with all the stuff that gives you an idea of what the elephant is. Did they encounter the elephant? Well, they encountered a thing, Mm -hmm. an object. They determined facts about the object. That's where object and facts are (laughs) different. Um, We we don't know an object. We know the facts about the object. I think that's that's yeah going back to where we were before. Yeah, that's a real good that's a real good quote. All right, last question. We've we've sort of been skimming towards this in a couple during the conversation a couple different ways. Is it possible? for independent realities to exist or does one reality exist and there's independent views <laughs> is it possible for independent realities to exist well let's go to, to physics and metaphysics again quantum physics the i this is so mushy into pop culture now and it, and it's fun the idea of multiverses the idea that we make a decision we turn right or left that breaks off into a bubble universe or other kinds of things. And, and so we, in fact, are doing that other thing, even though in that universe where we aren't in this one. Okay, so if it all works that way, then uh, then we can create multiple realities with everything that we do. But even if you take that as a metaphor, we create realities, as you said moments ago, uh, waveforms collapse and we <laughs> the things are happening is there one reality and we're all interpreting it differently uh, if we put let's put the multiverses aside for a moment and, and, and okay one event happens how many times do we do we encounter this with with, with police officers however I uh, feel about the state of law enforcement now I have uh, certainly anyone who is having to encounter a situation in which uh, <laughs> blood pressures and emotions and endorphins and everything are uh, up. People are going to see different things, as you were talking about before. And for them, that is what they are certain they saw. If they can become less certain of what they saw and and rethink then there may still be a reality in there, but they are experiencing seemingly uh, different perceptions of 
the reality. Yeah, and psychology is has an interesting um, research into this, where you know they've found that people who continue to tell the same lie over and over again eventually begin to believe it themselves, oh, yeah, yeah. and so their reality becomes you know, this, this lie that never actually happened, but right. to them, it's real. It's an interior reality that they're projecting onto the exterior world. Yeah. Yeah. So yeah, there is really two sort of ways of looking at that, right? Yeah. You have the human internal psychological reality. And then, like you said, the sort of the multiversal reality, um, you know, if, you have the the quantum realm and the collapsing wave functions, and every every second there's a, a multiverse spinning off. So I think what we're talking about here is sort of the definitional limitations of reality. Mm-hmm. So if you have a multiverse, mm-hmm. is it a separate reality in each multiverse, or is the reality just that there's a multiverse where everything's happening, or is the reality just inside your own mind? And this is all comes back to what we were talking about at the beginning of the episode, skepticism versus naive um, realism versus scientific realism versus how far can we trust the perceptions, whether they're human or scientific or mechanical or, or abstract, how far can we trust what we perceive to say, this is real, and what is on the other side of that is not. I think that depends. This is a wishy-mishy answer, (laughs) a wishy-washy response. That depends on what one is going to do with that perception, if anything. If I perceive something, and, and, and I don't particularly I see a, a flickering in the air, and some part of my imagination wants that to have been a ghost or a momentary visit from another reality, or, 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 or. If that satisfies me, if it intrigues me, if it, if it delights me, um, if it's not going to lead me to do harm to somebody, then, I, then there's nothing wrong with that reality, so-called, right? Um, if I if I want to dwell in it, however, if I'm going to make de- uh, judgments and determinations about how things ought to be, about laws and and behavioral constraints and so on, uh, based on whatever X experience that I had, then there ought to be a lot more caution and and questioning before that reality is simply accepted. Hmm. I, th- I think. But I'm back to the shoulds again. I should, you know, I, I shouldn't, I shouldn't, I should, ah, mm-hmm. I should. <laughs> My job is not to tell people what they ought to think, but I'm trying to conf- express what I, as one person, where I think the ought line is. Because we all have ought lines, we all have should lines. Uh, but for me, it it's, depends on how far ripples ought to encompass things that are going to uh, have a significant effect on other people. Yeah. In the in reality, the truth of the matter is that you should continue to think about realism. <laughs> <laughs> That's <laughs> until fine. Ne- <laughs> until next time, keep pondering. Yeah.